The Guardian. Have you always wanted to write a novel, a history, a short story, your epitaph? Want to know how successful authors do it? It's all in a new Guardian book. I'll tell you more at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to Media Talk. On this week's show, it's GE Day at the BBC as George Empersall takes up the reins as new Director General. B-Sky-B is given a clean bill of health by media regulator Ofcom, but it's prognosis negative for James Murdoch. Talking of whom, guess who came number 100 in our annual power list, the Media Guardian 100. And we turn the oven up to 11 as we look at all things small screen, including the third series of The Killing and The Great British Bake Off, hence uh, the oven uh, reference thing. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. I'm joined for the start of the show by Dan Saber, The Guardian's Head of Media and Tech, and by Media Talk regular journalist Maggie Brown. Welcome both. Hello. Hello. Good week, bad week? Oh, tremendous week. I was fooled by uh, some spam for the first time. I was told I had a £400 refund from the um, uh, Inland Revenue. And you fell for it? I'd already spent it in my head, clicked the link, and my, my computer lit up like a Christmas tree. So, but I still, part of me still believes I am going to get this money. Oh, really? You must yeah. probably owe them more, in fact. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't discuss this on air. No, entirely. My, my form is already in for next year. We begin this week with Sky. The broadcaster has been under forensic examination by media regulator Ofcom, which launched an investigation last year asking whether it was a fit and proper owner of broadcast licences. The inquiry was launched last July in the wake of the phone hacking scandal at News International, a 39% shareholder in Sky, of course, and the day before the publisher announced it was closing the news of the world. Uh, Dan, the results are in, as they say, and it was... um, Good news for Sky, but less so for its former chairman, James Murdoch. Uh, zero surprise on, on, on the final verdict, I think. There's no evidence that Sky, or its newsroom, or its journalists were involved in, in phone hacking. There's no real evidence, any sort of anything seriously untoward that would justify taking away a broadcast licence. I mean, that's a very heavy thing to do in a democracy. And I think you, you would have to sort of, you know, have to unearth sort of serious widespread criminality. And I mean, this is you know, a million miles away from where we are at Sky. So, you know, I think there are no issues there. But what I think is quite interesting is two things. One, you know, uh, the fit and proper test is what they call a continuing obligation. You have to be fit and proper every day. And, you know, Ofcom just sort of, you know, reminded everyone that it can reserve the right to take any action if, if as a result of the, you know, phone hacking trial, some some really sort of, you know, awkward evidence were to emerge uh, that, that really sort of made things put pressure on News Corporation, obviously the big shareholder. But what was really interesting was the sort of language around James Murdoch. And I think you touched on it in the introduction. Really sort of you know really critical language you know you know Ofcom said it considered that James Murdoch's conduct in various instances fell short of the standard to be expected the chief executive officer uh, and a chairman that's uh, that's in terms of News International uh, you know and so it goes on you know we considered uh, you know we consider James Murdoch's conduct including his failure to initiate action on his own account on a number of occasions to be both difficult to comprehend and ill-judged that's in terms of what he was doing or otherwise when the first set of phone hacking allegations were aired uh, by this newspaper, you know, and, and you know, so it goes on. Ofcom says there are questions regarding James Murdoch's competence in the handling of these matters and his attitude towards the possibility of wrongdoing in companies for which he was responsible. These incredibly harsh words. If he was chairman of Sky uh, before seven a.m. this morning, before this came out, he would have had to he would have had to resign. And I think they've pretty much closed the door on him becoming chairman of Sky again. You know, so 
really difficult verdict for James Murdoch. And yet, this is the guy who was paid 16.8 million by News Corp last year. Maggie, yes, as, as Dan suggested, this is a sterner criticism as there's been of James Murdoch over the whole phone hacking affair. There certainly has. And uh, I mean, I, I know uh, MPs like Tom Watson feel disappointed, but uh, I mean, to have taken away a broadcasting licence uh, in the circumstances, I never thought that was on the cards, but it most certainly does not uh, add to his attorney luster to his name. In fact, it undermines him further. And I would have thought, really, that now everybody knows he's kind of being watched like a hawk. And, of course, he's only one of 13, I think, directors at uh, B Sky B. But um, yes. I think, uh, uh, you know, it certainly hasn't... Uh it certainly hasn't helped his case. It was a very grudging point by Ofcom. They sort of said, well, I suppose he can remain as a director of Sky. <laughs> yes. It's a matter for Sky, because, as you say, he's only one of 13 and therefore a, a, you know, an individual with a relatively diminished influence. Is there a sense, Dan, that it's, uh, it's slightly sort of cut before the horse, it felt, uh, this whole Ofcom investigation, in the sense they were looking at phone hacking, but from the point of view of News International's uh, role as a shareholder in Sky. So it felt kind of skewed in a sense. I think it was always a sort of one removed from Sky, and I think it... Look, I was quite surprised when Ofcom even opened the investigation, and but but nevertheless, perhaps the regulator had come under enough pressure, or just felt, and you know that the, the level of, well, I suppose at that point, well, the level of potential criminality that uh, at the news, of the world, maybe elsewhere, was so great that it just had to at least sort of, you know, look like it was going through the going through the motions. Uh, it's clearly done so in quite a detailed way, uh, you know. I'd have thought, but. Yeah, again, it just would have been a major, major surprise and I think would have been probably quite an unjust outcome, frankly, if Ofcom took this dramatic action against And losing a broadcast licence, that's the sort of thing that sort of, uh, just to put this into context, the sort of thing that happens to sort of niche... Uh, well, very small kind of niche channels at the end of the Pornography, EPG. Pornography, well, you know, the red-hot yes. sort of type of Pre- uh, Press TV, I think, lost its broadcast licence, which is the Iranian back channel. But again, I mean, that was sort of systematic, I think, in breaches of impartiality and so forth. The other thing I think about B-Sky-B at the moment is, I don't know if you think this, Dan, but uh, it got really into it, it has got into a tiz now over the rights to um, screening rugby, um, uh, the European Cup and, and the breakaway now of this uh, English uh, sort of almost Premier League group and it just occurred to me that you know five or six years ago uh, they would have been much closer to the the, the, the rights holders and, and wouldn't, this wouldn't have happened. Well, I think I, I think Barney Francis's deputy is uh, head of sport left oh, quite suddenly a few weeks ago yeah. and I mean I, th- I think in the, in the usual flood of euphemisms and nobody saying why but. Uh, I think the failure to sort of pin down some of these rugby rights is widely thought to be, you know, widely thought to be possible. But Sky is, look, Sky is an incredible engine. It's still, you know, it's at 10 million plus homes, incredibly profitable, investing more and more in content. Sky Atlantic does some great things. Um, you know, this is still the broadcaster on the move in Britain. Oh, I agree, but I just think it, it's funny to see them somehow getting bested over sports rights when we don't normally see, or we haven't seen that for a very long time. Well, there's all you need to know on uh, Ofcom's verdict on Sky at mediaguardian.co.uk. We will get on to George Entwistle in a moment, but first a roundup of the other news this week. And uh, Maggie, I see you're clutching your hand a, a Media Guardian 100. I it certainly am. like am. an annual power list you brought along. <laughs> well, I have actually sort of been around since it was first initiated in 2001. So, well, I mean, I found it quite interesting to look back because one of the, I always, I'll tell you the truth, I always regarded this list as something like a box of licorice all sorts. In other words, we, all of the things in it, there's about five or six different strands when you think television media press you know radio 
PR, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but we're not really comparing like with like. So it, it's when Janine Gibson launched this uh, very interesting idea in 2001, I remember her writing and saying that, you know, it was about power, it was about influence, but it was also bound to be a bit flawed because it has to be subjective because it's, it's not measuring things like a rich list where you just add up how many more millions or billions people have made. Um, but I do find it very interesting. So I turn back to the, um, the, the, the first list and in some ways it, it's, it's, quite, it's quite interesting because our list this week uh, had Larry Page and uh, Dick Costola at the top, very much uh, on the, the kind of the social media and, and um, internet-born services. And very and, much in America, yes. And very much in America. And, uh, you know, when we, um, uh, when we launched in 2001... Lord, Lord Oh, no, not, not that long ago. <laughs> not that yeah. long ago, no. I mean, number one was Rupert Murdoch, but then there was, uh, you know, Bill Gates at number two and Jerry Levine and, uh, you know, so it went. So it, it's, it's been quite interesting. Uh, I, was, I was also rather amused to see that um, Paul Dacre was more or less where he is in the current list. Uh, he's, I think he's at seven or eight, but he was at eight in, in the original list. Because no, some things don't change. And Sir Martin Sorrell was, was there, Charles Allen, Tony Ball, um, and Michael Green, of course, have we, we've all forgotten him, but also um, dear old Peter Bazalgette, who was now uh, leading on this, uh, this judging. He was uh, in at number 16. Most like a guest list at one of my summer parties. I, I think it was, it was an interesting list to put together because you could move a lot of people down, but it was hard to think of a lot of people to move up. And, and you know, Facebook, Facebook would go down. Uh, uh, Rupert Murdoch's never been lower. I think at number 10, I'm looking at you, John. Number 11. Of, number 11. 11. Damn yeah. it, almost. And... <laughs> uh, 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 number 11 one place behind uh, uh, Lord Justice Levinson but anyone involving anyone sort of connected with News Corp was going to be going down I think you know, tough year for a lot of the newspaper business and so we felt very much that it's actually it was Lord Patton and George Entwistle at three and four uh, uh, we absolutely moved up because it's because the BBC uh, just by sort of you know, uh, you know, just by sort of sailing, sailing on uh, 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 and not being damaged by sort of various sort of scandals and controversies of the last year or so, has really sort of, you know, moved up the list. And I think Lord Patton at number three because he's the man. Well, partly because George Edwards has just started, but Lord Patton is the sort of man who you know really feels like he's in charge. He's he's got the DG in his shape, as it were, the one who compliments him by having the programming background that he Patton doesn't have. And Maggie, you were maybe next year. You weren't on the panel that, that came out with the list, but who did we miss? Who would you have included? I, I felt a bit uneasy about people like um, Kate and Moran, to be honest with you. It's, uh, I've, I've, I mean, I don't know if anybody read the Times last Saturday, but the reader's uh, editor had to bat lots of letters away from people who said they'd had quite enough of her. She just brought out her Moran, Moran anthology of, of old columns, and um, I was sort of a little bit concerned. I, I would have thought there might have been a few more women like uh, Silla Snowball, the... Um, chairman of the Advertising Association and chairman of one of our biggest advertising agencies. I was interested that Tim Hinks, nobody from Endemol, uh, which always used to feature very heavily, um, wasn't there. Dawn Airy, of course, has sort of seemed to have sunk. And um, the, the kind of women like Jana Bennett, I would have, for B Sky B, have suggested uh, Mike Darcy, the chief operating officer, because it is clear that he was the person who came up with the deal for the 24 streams Olympic Games channels on the EPG which personally I found myself when I wasn't actually at the games you know watching very intently while I was watching one or two of them okay I was watching the equestrian events but you know (laughs) they they were very very good and I thought it was a so I was surprised that he wasn't there well you mentioned a a couple of women there and we we, Dan we threw this question open uh, on the website and uh, Yellow Skies uh, commented how about anyone who isn't an old white guy but I mean that's (laughs) that's a 
in one sense, uh, you know, well, that's something we, I feel we like, brought up at the meeting. I, I feel like George Ent was sort of defending the Today programme, but, you know, we're sort of, unfortunately, we're reflecting society, not trying to shape it in this list. And I don't think we, we you know, one one might wish it were otherwise, but, but this is, you know, this is our sort of assessment of power and influence. I, I think to your point on Ka- Caitlin, for what it's worth, Maggie, I think we just felt... Uh, a sort of cultural influence is one of the things we kind of look at, and clearly this list is heroically subjective. But I think she drives a lot of drives a lot. You know, I think she helps sell to sell the paywall to the you know to Times readers. That's what we thought, and I think she's a force. The books, you know, the books, and you know, you see people on the tube reading her. Uh, How to be so, a woman? Yeah, you know, funny. So we I just we, don't we, think we, she's we repeating that. herself all the time. Now, I mean, I feel if I hear any more times about you know how dreadful, dreadfully interesting it was to grow up in a Wolverhampton council uh, house and to be self-schooled and go to the library and read every book in the library at least six times I just sort of feel I've I've sort of know exactly where she's coming from now and, and also even her style of writing too but having said all of that I agree it's bad influence and that's why influence is so very hard to um, judge I myself am very pleased to see Claire Balding uh, on the list if we're going to talk about women I just think, reading her book it's absolutely magnificent I think look I think we felt very I think we just felt she was sort of the woman of the moment and she's the present she's the presenter that everyone's talking about she had a brilliant Olympics straight into the Paralympics is obviously the face of Channel 4 Racing too and suddenly you know everybody you know wants her sort of fronting her show fronting their shows and that's very exciting Odd too we haven't had John Whittingdale on before in a way because I mean he's been really quite influential powerful force as chairman of the Culture Media Sport Committee for some time now interesting to see him on the list I was pleased to see him there well we had Tom Watson too and I think he's had a quite a lively year <laughs> well, well maybe we'll get Kate and Moran on next week to, uh, to, dr- to address your concerns Maggie and tell us once more about how many times she's taken that book out of the Wolverhampton Library if I, if, I, if I followed you correctly in other news the topless photos of the Duchess of Cambridge have been spreading across Europe like a failing common currency despite the Royals lawyers no that's not a Channel 5 show winning an injunction in the courts in France uh, Dan, first of all, what did you make of the Royals' tactics? Uh, was it a surprise to see them go to court in France? It was a little bit incoherent, I think, their tactics. Uh, uh, I was clearly surprised to see them seek an injunction in France. It's closer. Uh, there is no PCC uh, in France. It's all statutory over there. So there's no, you know, in Britain, when they're un- unhappy about something, they have always had a long tradition of going to the PCC, and that's actually really helped shore up the credibility of the PCC uh, uh, over time. They didn't have that option in France. But, of course, I think the, the, the pictures sort of, news about the pictures are breaking before the weekend, and they didn't get the sort of, you know, they didn't sort of even begin to seek the injunction until this week so by which time frankly closer was sort of been on sale for a couple of days and you know the pictures and talk of them are spread around the world and what's happened since is that then you've seen although they did get the injunction in France you've seen well the pictures have gone to Italy and uh, Sweden and Denmark and and they haven't taken injunctions in other countries so there'd be to realist the genie's out of the bottle and I think and actually we've become a story that's quite hot sort of at the back end of last week there's a lot of public interest in it has sort of just bored everybody now I think people have frankly dare I say it, you know are absolutely outraged by what the French have done and immediately gone on the internet to see the pictures themselves and Dan we weren't expecting these pictures to be published closer to home but they did end up in the Irish Daily Star which was a bit of a surprise certainly it was to Richard Desmond it would appear well well it's caused an, al- it's caused an almighty mess in which um the best explanation seems to be that the editor of the Irish Daily Star or the management didn't didn't tell the two shareholders, which are independent news and media on one side and Richard Desmond's Northern Shell on the other. Well, you know, got to take that one at face value. Um, they've launched an investigation. The editor's been suspended. I mean, as soon as uh, Richard Desmond's people heard about it, uh, they sort of said they wanted to shut the Irish Daily Star down. And you remember this is a company 
or Richard Desmond had a pretty poor Leveson experience. Or, uh, uh, and so, and everyone talks about the Desmond problem. This is the guy who won't sign up to the PCC. So they've got a real image issue. So I'm not, you know, they jumped on, I'm not surprised they jumped on it so aggressively, although to, cl- to threaten to close a newspaper is a very heavy thing to do. It's so very disproportionate, yeah, isn't it? 80 staff and I think 40 freelancers, you know, 120 p- people kind of employed by that paper one way or another and it's quite successful the daily star in ireland is more is much punchier um and and sort of sells better proportionally than it does in 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 the uk so you know one shouldn't sort of dismiss this as a kind of sort of really sort of out there paper it's not anyway i think tempers have cooled to the point where now i think desmond wants to exit the joint venture which sort of at least makes you know makes a lot more at least it makes a lot more sense and also, I mean, you know, editors make mistakes, and I, this wasn't surely, you know, the worst mistake an editor could make in those circumstances. And Liz Jones in the Daily Mail said the uh, said that no woman should go topless in the first place. Well, <laughs> I'm not sure that's a solution that would be welcome to all. Maybe not the royals, anyway. Um, Maggie, Dan, that's the end of the first part of the show. Thanks very much. It's been a busy week for George Entwistle, who became the BBC's 15th Director General on Monday. Actually, fact fans, is the 16th. Uh, that's if you count Sir Cecil Graves and Robert Foote, who shared the job in the early 1940s as separate people. But uh, anyway, I digress. Dan, in the best tradition of Morecambe and Wires, what do you think of him so far? Well, he hasn't come out with an awful lot to say in his first week. Uh, he's very, I mean, he's very personal and sort of, sort of constructed this strategy interview in the Radio Times and the Today programme and, and, you know, and I think revealed in the Radio Times that he'd written a letter uh, at the age of six. He'd written a letter um, complaining that the budget had overrun and he wanted to see Tom and Jerry and him and his brothers were disappointed. And the letter, of course, was written to the, some boss at the BBC, except part into whistle and never got round to posting it so he was able to hand this great text to the radio times so it said a lo- lovely little story about a, a man reared on television and a man who loves television and I was kind of, that was essentially a sort of message of the week and he talked a lot you know he talked a lot about his love for various programs he's very comfortable saying he preferred radio three to radio two again in the radio times interview four to five live how much he loved the great british bake-off uh, you know and so on and so forth but he really only came with one sort of really clear easy to grasp uh, 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 thing for the first gender item for the first week and that was there aren't enough women on screen and they'd like to see more doesn't want to set any targets don't want to do anything difficult like that but he just wants to have more, more, more women on screen and on air. And he said, for example, the Today programme, next time there's a vacancy, who knows when that'll be, but next time there's a vacancy, there should be a, uh, you know, he'd love to see a female presenter appointed. And he'd like to see more women on the Today programme, where I think it's 16.5% on the last time we counted with the um, number of women who were sort of contributors and guests. Let's hear what the new DG had to say on this very topic. The Director General does not select... Um, presenters for shows. The people who select presenters for shows are the editors of those programmes, the executive producers of programmes, the channel controllers, all the, the, co- the commissioning creators you would expect to be involved in the selection of, uh, of presenters. What I get to do is I, I, I get to set a, a, a framework or a context. I get to say what I think matters. The BBC needs to do better over, over women on screen and I, I don't restrict it to uh, any hair colour. It's, it's, it, I think you know, we, we need more women on screen generally. 
Well, BBC Trust Chairman Lord Patton chose not to appoint the first uh, female DG, but it turns out he didn't really need to because this issue was Maggie has been uh, all that's really dominated uh, Entwistle's first week in charge. And that reference to hair colour there was um, he was talking about comments from Fiona Bruce in Reader's Digest saying that she um, she had to dye her hair, age 48 years old as she is, she had to dye her hair to read the news on, on the BBC. I thought that was really pathetic because actually, I, I, well, I hope she doesn't feel she has to dye her hair just to read the news. I, I, the hair dye issue is really one of those sort of silly things to to kind of pin on the BBC because all women that I know dye their hair I dye my hair Uh, my my daughter who's 26 dyes her hair and the idea that women only dye their hair because they don't want to look old I mean women dye their hair because they like dyeing their hair so I've I found the 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 Fiona Bruce point it's a red herring it's a great herring but but what has actually happened is that George has is inheriting an issue that has really been unresolved over the past two or three years. Ever since the Miriam O'Reilly Well, partly Miriam O'Reilly. I think it was bubbling away before that as well, because remember Arlene Phillips and, you know, that there's been this sort of sense that uh, there's one rule for silver-haired men and one rule for everybody else. Uh, Having said that, when I first came into writing about media journalism in 1986, I was at an awards ceremony at the Grosvenor House Hotel, and... um, Exactly the same thing was being, uh, you know, said in about certain uh, female presenters who were going up to win prizes. I mean, Esther Ransom, for example. I heard a, a waiter say, "Gosh, doesn't she look old?" And uh, so, I, 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 you would have hoped that time, times had moved on. And of course, as uh, the BBC can flourish. Um, grey-haired ladies like uh, Mary Beard at us and say, look, you know, it's it's not a case of, of prejudice. But this this issue does need uh, to be resolved, and it is noticeable. I, I think George was the right person for the job, but it, once again the BBC goes back to appointing uh, a man as uh, Director General, despite, of course, the chairman saying he would have loved to appoint a woman, and, and, and so it goes. In fact, there has been a somewhat... Um, interesting uh, exit of quite powerful women at the BBC when you think you know Jana Bennett for example and uh, you know the, the Caroline Thompson Caroline very Thompson soon and uh, Jay Hunt of course uh, Zarin you know, Patel. Going, going, Zarin Patel so I mean it's just something uh, that, that we need to look out for I thought though the point about George's um, the, the, the other messages in his uh, his speech to, to staff was really emphasis on creativity an emphasis on doing things better, uh, uh, having a a, a much freer ability to criticise, to be more scrupulous, really, about standards, to make uh, the the very best programmes they can, and not to uh, sit in silos and quarrel with each other, although, of course, internal competition is always probably the best competition when you think about it in big organisations. And then he had this very interesting uh, restructuring plan, which I really don't understand, but he's talking about a sort of a profound moment of change when uh, the BBC will have to come up with new digital offerings and content, uh, although he couldn't really, it seemed to me anyway, mm. explain exactly what he wanted. So, so it sounded like they wanted to get into computer games, although the way he put it, it was like there'd be a drama and you could switch point of view, you know, like choose your own adventure or something, you could switch from one character to another, or uh, which all sounded a bit Well, you vague. see, the other interesting thing was that in the speech, he was also then talking about the power of really big live events, the 28 million people who were turning in for the opening and the closing events of the Olympics, and of building other sort of national moment events out of things up and coming. For example, the, the, the 100th anniversary of the outbreak of World War One. So he's kind of wanting it sort of both ways. I asked him the question, actually, at, at the um, briefing, was he he talking about a, a new push on digital because obviously after the iPlayer and all the rest of it, people are migrating and, and even if our 
linear channels are holding up extremely well. Perhaps it's a, a, an attempt to make sure that when the license is and the charter is renewed in in 2016-17, it can be maybe a, a license that you can receive your BBC content any which way. It doesn't. It's not pinned to a television set or any kind of device. So he he denied that that was the case. But I did wonder if it was the sort of first case, sort of of of, of how they intend to defend their position. Dan, do you think, is it possible to become the new DG without announcing an overhaul of the BBC structure? You know, we've had Greg Dyke's petals, we had uh, John Burt divided production and broadcast. Uh, Mark Thompson then came in with, um, was it delivering creative renewal, I think, in 2006, which saw BBC Vision come up and now it's going to dissipate down the plug hole again? Absolute requirement, I think, to have a massive, <laughs> meaningless organisational restructure. Uh, uh, and I think the trouble is, with all organisations, you sort of go, you tend to alternate, you go from one structure to the other and no, none of them's quite right. And I mean, it's just sort of the nature of, I think, a big organisation. I mean, he hazily talked about maybe collapsing some of the boundaries between vision, audio and music, and, you know, what we used to call TV and radio, I think, and maybe sort of organising things on a genre lines. And what, I mean, what did that mean for the control of BBC One? Didn't say. But look, all heroically unclear, no doubt all be good fun. I think the one thing that we do think is right down the track, and we were surprised he didn't announce, was a, a sort of a hugging clip of bringing worldwide much closer into the commercial and much closer to the public service mothership and almost certainly departure off John Smith, its chief executive, with whom everyone believes is sort of his, his sort of fallen out or kind of wants to sort of ease out. Uh, that didn't happen. That didn't happen this week, but I think it's going to happen pretty soon. Well, I think it's but, because you know, he's again, trying... it's not quite clear what all that's about. I mean, you know, other than maybe just sort of minding worldwide a bit more. I think I think John Smith is chairing a Royal Television Society conference at the end of this month, so I would have thought you know he's going to be allowed to do that. And also, the the trust haven't finally decided what their policy is exactly going to be towards uh, worldwide. But clearly, there's going to be a re- there is in process now, as we can see, a reorganisation at the top of the BBC. He he, I, he did say he was going to appoint a new director of vision for example so I mean whatever he's talking about however he's talking about restructuring the BBC it's not going to happen yet and so there's plenty of movement and of plenty of people who who could go forward I, I, I think Roger Mosey might be a person who you would trust with BBC Worldwide if you intend to pull it closer into BBC public service values then um, he's shown that he can operate in a, a very um, high-powered and successful manner and on this very issue, Dan, I think you caught up with a, a, a former and familiar BBC name this week. Yeah, Jane Root was controller of BBC Two up until the end of Greg Dyke's uh, reign as DG. And of course, uh, when George Entwistle was editor of Newsnight and uh, the Culture Show, uh, she was his boss. Then she crossed the Atlantic uh, to become president of Discovery Channel in the US. And now she's founder of, and chief executive of this uh, TV production company, Natopia. And... Um, uh, you know, and I went and asked her um, a few questions about George. So, what does he have to do to be a successful director general? You have to convince everybody that he loved the BBC, both inside and outside, which is not hard because clearly, clearly he does. But then you have to start figuring out how you're going to play that complicated game of not totally offending all the competitors who are circling around and pretty jealous of what the BBC is and what it manages to achieve while not managing to really piss off everybody who works for the BBC. So walking that line is one of the hardest things that any DG has to do. 
and it kind of starts on day one. You're a programmer, and you see things on sort of both sides of the on both sides of the pond now. I mean, it you know it seems to me from you know Sky Atlantic, dare I say, is my favourite channel. I think that we're now seeing incredible sort of quality from American drama in particular, and a real challenge from from the US in that regard. You know, the Beeb obviously loves to hold itself up as a global sort of gold standard broadcaster. Is it really doing that? And does George need to sort of rebalance the organisation or invest in certain areas? What does he need to do in terms of sort of avoiding complacency uh, at the organisation? Well, so I'm glad you like Sky Atlantic. We've, shameless plug here. We've got a big show, uh, the British, on Thursday nights on Sky Atlantic, which has been funded to a level I don't know the BBC would ever done, and it's a hugely ambitious thing. I think that kind of firepower coming in from competitors, particularly like Sky with their new content strategy, is one thing that George is going to really, really have to watch. The global piece is another one. I mean, you, the BBC's good at a lot of things, arguably. You know, there's a lot of things that other people are also very good at. Drama is something which Britain is quite good at. I don't think that, I don't think that many people in America, Downton Abbey from ITV aside, would say that British drama lives up to most of what people can see on many channels every night. In America, should, getting should. his head around the global piece is a is a really big one on the you know the inbox. Should, 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 should George's BBC be be better actually at exporting uh, not just formats but exporting actual programmes? And you mentioned obviously Downton on ITV, but 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 should his BBC be targeting that? Is that something we should have those kind of landmark shows that can sell into a US audience as well? I think it's always a big conflict for the BBC because on one hand. It gets the license fee to appeal to British audiences and license fee payers. And if you're going to start appealing to the worldwide audience, then that audience isn't always going to be first. So it's not an easy one to solve like that, but it's figuring out how to do it. And I, think that, and I do think that Mark Thompson's made some big leaps in that with Worldwide. He's also talked about, you know, all the channels and radio stations are sort of safe with him as if sort of there's some sort of constitutional permanence to the, the structure of the organisation, or at least its output in that sense. Is that, the, is that right, though, actually? Should there be the sort of same number of channels as there are now? Or, or, or is there some scope, actually, for maybe having less channels or radio stations, but sort of spending more money on, on content in different ways? I don't know. I, I kind of, it wouldn't be, if I was in his shoes, it wouldn't be something I'd be rushing to do because I think once you've done all the hard effort of creating a radio station or a TV station and you've got something that people care about and an audience, then you pretty much want to hang on to it and grow it, even if it's a, even if it's a small way. And I, I think the easier win, quite honestly, in terms of saving some money is just about bureaucracy. It's just about, you know, how long it, how many people it takes to make a decision, how many people are employed in commissioning, all of those things that, you know, I've commissioned programs for the BBC and for Discovery and worked in a lot of, worked with a lot of other American content project providers. It's it's about a third of the number of people. You know, the, the double tick complexities of, ratios and regional quotas and quotas for this and quotas for that it, it's a huge complex thing there has to be ways of doing that and lastly did you work alongside george i can't think was it when he was at newsnight were you at bbc2 i don't I, yes yes do you he, have any he, do you have any sort of george and some memories or anecdotes that you can share with uh, george is like a, is a fantastically smart guy I think that's one of the things about him is that you go and see him with a, a vague kind of muddly problem in your head and say, 
should we be doing something a bit more about this? And he kind of looks at you for a couple of minutes and sort of pauses, and then three sentences come out of his mouth, which is the complete solution. So the, the intellectual power of it is pretty astounding. And you tend to sort of say, oh, yes, yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> it's TV time, and I'm joined by The Guardian's TV editor, Vicky Frost. Hello. How are you doing? I'm all right, thank you. Lovely to see you. Uh, fresh from uh, Norway, another Norway jaunt, is that right? Uh, or Denmark. From Denmark. <laughs> yes. Denmark, of course. From Denmark, yes. Don't offend the Scandinavians. Uh, yes, it's all a... <laughs> so, uh, yes, I am from... It's um, all a blur to me. As you say, another Danish jaunt. Like, I spend all my time there, which is slightly outrageous. Every other week. Uh, yeah, only every other week. Uh, yes, so I've been in Copenhagen where... Uh, the, which is in Denmark. Which is in Denmark. <laughs> Uh, for the Killing Three. For the Killing Three, exactly. For the premiere of the Killing Three, which is just which starts on uh, Danish TV this weekend and will be on British screens probably around mid-November. I think that's when they're thinking of. So now I can tell you some things about it, but I'm trying to be extra careful not to do any spoilers because I would be furious if that happened. So um, you know, it's it, this is the. So third, who did it? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not even going to tell you what the crime is at the centre of it because that's Surely how much I don't want to. That's how much I don't want to spoil it. Um, but uh, yes, we rejoined Sarah Lund for her third and final adventure. You know, the killing was always uh, designed to be a trilogy, and this will be the final adventure. There will be no more. I am promised adventure. by many people. Adve- well, I like that. I adventure. like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know. It makes it look sound exciting. Um, and so we rejoined Sarah Lund, who, uh, if you manage to, uh, if you watch the second series, you'll know at the end of the second series, this isn't a spoiler because it's broadcast, and you know I have to be able to say some things sometime. I think uh, her her then partner shot her but she didn't die but she had to shoot him and it was all you know and so she was really a broken woman at the end of that series so now we meet her again um and obviously that's had an impact upon her and it's a largely new cast with her uh in lots of ways is her sexy boss still in it uh, Bricks, yes, he is, and I met him. That was very oh. exciting. I know, I know. Is uh, he five foot two in real life? Or? No, he's a hundred feet tall. Is he? Yes, oh. I was sort of had to stand on tiptoes to even talk really? to him. Yeah, it was a bit so weird. Would I. A sort of like <laughs> I do whatever he told me. <laughs> well, yes. Anyway, yes, I did meet Bricks. Did You're saying he's built like a Bricks shit house? No, he's just very tall, and um. Oh, now I've totally forgotten what I was going to say. So what I was going to say is, obviously, the second series was slightly different from the first, and not everybody loved it. And uh, the army angle in the Afghanistan... You know, when Sarah went to Afghanistan, I think we all had to suspend a bit of disbelief that she was really running around in Afghanistan looking in bread ovens and things. I mean, that's just not... I thought it was awful. Well, I didn't think it was awful, but I didn't think it was great either. And uh, what's good news for Killing fans is I think this is a bit of a return to the first series. It's um, that theme of family uh, that was very was which was so striking about the first series and brought so many people to it is is very much back there uh, again. It's very much back in the mix, and I think its preoccupations are much more as they were in the first series. Uh, so I think that's good news. Um, I think, actually, the first two episodes, well, it'll be interesting when we see them here. So I saw them on a big screen, which actually, if you're trying to watch a big screen and subtitles, is trickier because you've got more space for your eye to cover, if that makes sense. <laughs> it's like it's, it's not easy being a TV editor, is it? 
it's a hard job but somebody's got to do it um it moves quite fast particularly given that we're used to the killing moving quite slowly uh the first two episodes do go at quite a lick so that will be an interesting thing when we see it there and on a smaller screen how how that feels maggie you must be a big uh, scandy drama fan yes i am and uh, i would have loved to uh, have gone to this uh, event because as you say you, you get to meet some of the rather nice stars but also um it is interesting the way that they don't make very much, but it all seems to be of a very high quality. Okay, given you know we didn't necessarily need the Afghanistan bit, but the overall plot was was quite interesting. Sounds to me a bit like Downton Abbey that they've gone back to basics. Would that would that be fair? Yes, I think that is fair actually. I think maybe you know the the feeling I got while nobody said you know we didn't like our second series, and you know in comparison with other dramas, that second series was still really good bit of drama. Um, I think they're perhaps aware that it strayed slightly from the real strengths of the first series, and so they're sort of quite happy to bring it back to that. And, of course, the, the executive producer is now in charge of all of their drama at um, DR, the Danish uh, radio public service broadcaster. Did she give any indication of what uh, her plans were? Not not a great deal. I mean, I think she thought that, you know, obviously um, the killing has uh, kind of prompted this great interest in Danish TV and Scandinavian TV as well, and so Volander and all that sort of thing, obviously part of that mix. And her feeling is, you know, of course they want to maintain, it's all about maintaining that level of quality. If they maintain that level of quality, British audiences will still be interested. If they don't, we won't, which I think is... You know, a sensible way to look at it, really. Well, The Killing is going to be back on BBC Four in mid-November, but on BBC Two right now is a show that I view with the same affection that I viewed the second series of The Killing. Uh, that's The uh, Great British Bake Off. Oh, John, you have which, no heart. Yeah. Uh, well, it doesn't matter what I think. It's doing uh, big numbers for BBC Two. Uh, upwards of 4 million, 5 million oh, yeah, viewers a yeah. week. Yes, you are in a tiny minority. It's am, huge for BBC Two. Enormous. And it's it's odd we haven't managed to talk about it yet on the pod, which is why I was so keen to talk about it this week. Because uh, we're, we're still quite some way from the eventual winner being crowned. But I just think it's a real phenomenon and it's quite fascinating and how it's got this mix right, you know, it manages to be a cookery show, but also to have a competitive element to it. And it involves sort of Mel and Sue as well, doing a small comedy bit, which I, you're doing a face at, but I really like. It's I like think- a one course MasterChef. They don't no. even get to do roast dinner. No, no. For instance, because I've not, got a very advanced palate. You can tell it's not like MasterChef because what it's about is about ordinary, likable people doing things brilliantly, doing things that you probably do at home. You probably bake a sponge. Well, maybe not you particularly, but one perhaps bakes a sponge or a meringue or all those things. These are things that people do actually make. Yeah, all the time. But, well, some people actually make and they do it incredibly well while being incredibly nice. And Mel and Sue being lovely and jolly and Mary Berry being very encouraging and Paul Hollywood just bringing that sort of twist of sort of acid to it, basically. And... I'm not, you know, it's a really interesting thing because it's basically the triumph of lovely television. You know, it, it doesn't try to be anything else but lovely. Maggie, it's, a, it's, a, it's an even split, one all, so you have the casting vote. Is The Great British Bake Off a recipe for a great night in? Uh, no, I, I, I never watch it, but I love Mary Berry, if you see what I mean. It's a very odd, I'm in an odd situation here. So it's one and a half each. I'm in an odd <laughs> situation in that I love Bake Off, but I did want to, ma- I bought Mary Berry's book off the back of it and made her biscuits and they were appalling. 
So, you right. know. <laughs> you probably pitch that to BBC <laughs> Two, you might get your own show. I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm actually just sort of allergic to cookery shows on television. Well, I think it's literally. partly partly because I've had four children. And when you get to kind of having an empty house, you are so glad you're not catering anymore. So food becomes catering. Is, oh. and it, but it is, it's, it's, that's quite, I feel slightly, oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it is a sensation. Uh, it is and a sensation. I mean, I sort of think of it as sort of uh, middle class midweek X factor, you know, with none of the horribleness and none of the phoning in. But you still lose a person every week. Uh, you're still counting down. You're still rooting for a winner. But everyone's just being very nice. And Simon Cowell's not going to make a load of money off the back of it. Yeah, and I Cowell's mean, doing his own cookery show, isn't he? Food, glorious food. Oh, yes, that is yeah. right. What will Ooh. that be like? Yeah. I know. I'll it's going like to be, it. it's gonna be <laughs> straight, <laughs> straightforward chicken pies, isn't it? He likes good old English uh, sort of That's more my food, your, food your oh. gran uh, used to cook you. But who cares what food Simon Cowell likes? I mean, that's the thing I don't understand about that whole commission, to be honest, is, you know, so what a bit. Well, when it comes on screen, we will return to it. Yes. Um, but you know what I do like about Bake Off is the competition element, which brings us to... The Media Monkey Quiz, which I know Maggie Brown's looking forward to. We've got a new innovation this week. That was so, a good link, um, if I can just uh, thank you. <laughs> if I can throw you this. Oh, oh I'll do that oh, again, oh. won't I? I didn't mean to hit the mic. I'll well, just... Perhaps you won't be able to do it. They're broken. Perhaps you won't be able to do it. It's broken, yeah. Right, Maggie, I know you've uh, been looking forward to this. There's only three questions, so the agony will not last long. Can I just say, I've been in Denmark this week. I haven't even been here. So well, I'm get your excuses really in badly. early. Yes, you should have heard Maggie's true. excuse. It's much better than yours. Can you test your buzzers, Maggie? And Vicky? Right, I hope you can tell them apart. Uh, the same, really. <laughs> question number one. Whose status plummeted $8.1 billion in the new Forbes Rich List? Status, clues in the question. Go for it. This is somebody from Facebook. Brilliant, yes. Can you think of someone from Facebook at all? <laughs> like the man who created it? Oh, Mark Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg, yes. Zuckerberg. Well done. <laughs> Give it that one. Uh, but the good news is uh, he's still worth $9.4 billion, the same as Rupert Murdoch. But it took Murdoch a bit longer, so um, who's the winner? Question number two. <laughs> Who wasn't happy to be doorstopped by Channel 4 News Chief Correspondent Alex Thompson? Former editor of The Sun? Maggie? Kevin, Kelvin McKenzie. Kevin McKenzie, that's Kelvin right. McKenzie. This is appalling. Kelvin McKenzie. You're so bad at this this well, week. You know. I'm sorry. Uh, one, one all. Yeah, Kelvin McKenzie. Uh, read all about it on the Media Monkey at mediaguardian.co.uk and see the video. So this is, in a sense, a, a, a tiebreaker. Question number three. Whose leaving due this week was attended by David Frost, David Attenborough? Well, I'm not sure who that was. I think it might have been, I think it was Maggie Brown. <laughs> Mark Thompson. Mark Thompson, who is the outgoing director general of the BBC. And uh, he cracked a joke, which you might have heard, Maggie. No, I, I wasn't um, there. Ah, um, no, he said it very loudly. That's why I thought you might have heard it. No, of course not. I didn't, didn't get all the way to Chiswick. Um, Mark Thompson said... Uh, if Dulwich. S- Dulwich. Dulwich, I do beg your pardon. What did I say? By the way, I've, I've scored two Can points. I've never joke? ever scored a point before, so this is a historic podcast. Well done. All right, Maggie, you win. All right. <laughs> we all knew that, but uh, Mark Thompson's joke was, if someone had told me that one day I would end up sleeping with the wife of the Director General of the BBC, I would be very surprised. Yeah, well, I'm sure it went down better at his leaving do. Uh, my thanks to Dan Saber, the victorious Maggie Brown, loser Vicky Frost and Jane Root. Do leave me your comments on our blog or our Facebook wall, wherever that is, or tweet me at johnplunkett149. Media Talk is produced by Matt Hill, with a special guest appearance this week by Mr Jason Phipps. See you next week. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio. Hi, I'm Simon Hattonstone. I'm a Guardian journalist, and I occasionally write books that are not read by many people. 
Let me tell you about some of the great advice from those who really know how to do it. Top name authors that you can read in a new Guardian book called Write. It's brilliant. Funny, perverse, bonkers and wise. If it sounds like writing, then I rewrite, says Elmore Leonard. There's an Enright for despairing writers. Remember, the first 12 years are the worst. So, don't put off that dream of winning the Booker Prize any longer. Get inspired by our new Guardian book, Write. You can get yours for half price, £6.50, using promo code PODCAST. To order, visit guardian.co.uk slash bookshop. Anytime up to the end of October.